Tonight, God's Word comes to us from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. We are going to read this whole chapter, but focus on verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 1. What we hear now is God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him." rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, we are continuing our study of Paul's letter to the church of the Colossians, a letter in which Paul focuses on the supremacy of Christ. He focuses on the glory of Christ, in whom all things come together. He talked in chapter 1 of Christ as firstborn over all creation, for in him before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is firstborn over creation, and he is firstborn over redemption. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. We saw that Paul gives us really the the, the key to this book in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This supreme Christ, this glorious Christ, this one who has redeemed us, now is the one for whom we must live. Our lives must reflect what he wants us to do and even how he wants us to think. We saw last time that Paul is addressing in chapter 2 some of the challenges to this, this walk, this life in Christ. Last time we talked about the intellectual challenges. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That you might be argued in a way that is contrary to the things of God. He goes on in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Intellectual challenges to the church, to the truth. Don't be led away. Don't be deceived, Paul says. He's going to go on now, and in chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2, deal with not intellectual challenges, but with ethical challenges behavioral challenges, things that would would have us live in a way contrary to this walk of God, this walk in Christ. He's going to talk about this. What does the Christian life look like? Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. God gave us life. He gave us a new life. What does that new life in Christ look like? Paul's talking about the relationship between the Christian and the law of God. What role does the law have in the life of the believer? Kids, you know I read the law every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning we hear from Exodus 20 or from Deuteronomy 5 or perhaps someplace else, we hear the law of God read. Why do we do that? What is the place of the law in the life of the believer? We say we've been set free from the law, free from its curse, free from its condemnation. Why bother reading that law Sunday after Sunday? 
Paul is dealing with how shall we live. And he warns us that having been set free from the curse of the law, not to lose our freedom, not to allow ourselves to become enslaved once again. And that's what he's going to talk about in this last half of chapter 2. Different things that can enslave us and, and have us lose our freedom, the freedom we now have in Christ, the freedom we have to live the Christian life. First of all, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. What was going on? Why does he say, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. How would this lose their freedom? There were those in the church who um, knew uh, the Old Testament laws of clean and unclean. Those who were well aware of what God had prescribed for His people throughout the years and had carried, in some ways, those laws over into the church these external laws of clean and unclean were now part of the New Covenant, the New Testament church. And there were those who didn't have this background. Gentiles with no idea about this Old Testament law of God. And of course, this, this caused a problem. What is the role of the law in the life of the believer. Is the law still binding? And in particular, are these Old Testament regulations still binding? They were the law of God. Certainly the church must still keep them. It is the law of God. But how does that law of God become applied after the work of Jesus Christ? After the one who has fulfilled the Old Testament law? We have to remind ourselves. When we talk about the law of God, there are really two parts to that law. There is the ongoing, abiding, moral command in the law. And there is the particular ceremonial application of that moral, abiding command. What was going on? is that there were those in the church who were trying to, to impose the application, the pre-Christ application, to a post-Christ church. They were applying these external uh, dietary laws. Now, those laws uh, don't bother us anymore. Um, none of us have uh, trouble uh, going to the store and picking out a beautiful pork roast and having that for dinner on a Sunday noon. We didn't have any problem with that, but it was a problem for them. What about these Old Testament laws? What about these Old Testament prescriptions? And how do they fit in the life of the church? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We would not be holy because of these external conformities to a particular application of God's law. No, our holiness comes from Christ and from His work. They were a shadow. He's the reality. He's the fulfillment. Let's not once again be bound, lose our freedom to these 
these Old Covenant, these Old Testament prescriptions that were particular to them, but were not part of the moral, abiding, ongoing law of God. Don't lose your freedom to food. Don't lose your freedom to festivals. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. This text has sometimes been used to say, you see, Paul says, uh, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regard to the Sabbath because the Sabbath is done away. It's part of that Old Testament uh, a law that Christ has fulfilled. So now we're free to worship any day we want. It's not what Paul is saying. It would take um, probably a whole sermon or maybe a couple sermons to fully unpack what Paul is saying in the verse 16 with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, I won't give you all those sermons tonight. Uh, simply to say, what Paul is referring to here, when he says, don't let anyone judge you according to a Sabbath, he is referring to that Old Testament application of the Sabbath principle, that seventh-day Sabbath. We know after Christ in the New Testament, worship began on the first day of the week. Now, there is an abiding Sabbath principle that we set aside one day in seven for rest and for worship. Hebrews makes that clear. There is a Sabbath which remains for the people of God. But he is saying, don't get caught up in this Old Testament seventh-day Sabbath. That is something which was a shadow. It is something which has passed away with the coming of Christ. We have the reality. We have the fullness. Therefore, we worship now on the day that Christ rose from the dead. We worship on the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. We worship on the first day. Don't, don't lose your freedom and be bound by the shadow. Now, I don't think that we today have a tendency to lose our freedom to the Old Testament law. Many of us realize the ceremonial component of the law. But I think we still have the danger of losing our freedom to certain traditions in the church. Now, some of our traditions are very good and very wise and very godly. But growing up in the Dutch Reformed tradition, we have our way of doing things. That, 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 that's just how it's done. That's how we do it. We must not forget that we, too, have a particular application of the law of God that we embrace. And we, not, we may not impose that, that particular, perhaps, man-made tradition upon others. As God, by His grace, continues to grow our congregation and more folks come in, which is a wonderful, blessed thing, we must make sure that we are committing ourselves to the ongoing, abiding, moral commands God has given to us and not a particular application of those commands, lest we have the same problems going on as there were in the, at the Colossian church, that there were these frictions because people were passing judgment 
in questions of food and drink and with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Paul says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't lose your freedom to particular traditions, particular applications of the law. Our commitment is to God and to his holy law, the abiding law, the permanent moral law. There were other challenges. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Don't lose your freedom to this idea of the worship of angels. The idea was earthly worship is fine. Gathering together as a church is fine, but there's more than that. There is something more we should try to attain. There is this worship by means of angels. And it sounded so pious, the idea was, look, God is so great, God is so glorious, we are too weak and frail to worship Him, so what we'll do is we'll worship the angels, and the angels will worship God. That was the idea going on. Paul says, to, to give in to this worship of angels is once again to lose our freedom. We have, through Christ, access to God. We have access to the Father, and we worship Him as we gather in His presence. Don't, don't look for something else. Don't look for something more, something better. Than, than Christ's means of worship, worshiping through him in spirit and in truth. And that is certainly a challenge we still face today. We have means given to us by God. We have the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the holy sacraments, and yet it seems like the church wants more. Isn't there something else? Isn't there something better? Isn't there something more than these simple means God has given to us? And Paul says to give in to that, to give in to that mentality is once again to lose your freedom, to keep looking for, for the next greatest thing, looking for more and more and more. In fact, what does he say? He says, don't give in to worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You want the church to grow, Paul says, then don't use these other ways. Don't use this worship of angels, these visions, these other crazy things going on. The sensuous mind comes up with those. No, you want the church to grow? Then grow the church the way God has intended the church to grow. Through his appointed means. Through the preaching of the Holy Gospel through the proper administration of the sacraments. Use the means of grace God has provided. Otherwise, we become enslaved once again. We lose our freedom. We lose our access to God through Jesus Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Asceticism, kids, is a word we don't use very much. It's, it's the idea that what is spiritual is good, and what is earthly is bad. What is spiritual is good, 
what is earthly is bad. That's a very simple definition of asceticism. That, that the things of this world are somehow less important. That, that my daily activity in my home, at my job, is somehow less important, less significant to God than what I do on Sunday, than how I gather together with His people in church. But Christ is a cosmic Savior. His salvation affects every part of our lives. All of it is to be lived before Him. Not only our life in church, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, not only our life on the Lord's Day, but every day is to be lived for Him. Every day we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto this God in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in the task, the vocation God has given us to do. All of it is significant. All of it belongs to Him. Don't think that there is this somehow um, neutral, indifferent part of our life. All of it belongs to God because He has rescued us wholly and completely. We are saved body and soul in life and in death. Everything we do, everything we act, everything we think, every action we take belongs to Him. Don't, don't, don't lose your freedom to serve God, not only on Sunday, but every day. Make every day meaningful because God owns every day. And this certainly is a challenge we face as the church today as well. There is this radical division between how we think and act on Sunday and the rest of our life. And we forget that all of it belongs to God. He is Lord and Savior over everything. Don't lose your freedom, Paul says. And he, of course, roots this in the fact that we have been freed from our sin, we have been freed from that slavery. Again from verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You were dead, but you're now alive. You had no life. Now you have life. Your sins were overwhelming and you could do nothing about it. But God has come and done everything necessary. Having, for, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The legal demands against us, the debt that we owed, has been paid by Christ. We talked about that this morning. Forgive us our debts. Christ forgave us for our sins, those sins of commission, those sins of omission. Christ removed the guilt. We have been freed, no longer enslaved. Don't let yourself be bound again, Paul says. Live in the life of your freedom. Live the way God has called you to. This is the glory of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. We are set free. And God calls you again tonight. If you are struggling, if you, if you are feeling the bondage of sin, then put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ. And know a freedom. 
know a release. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. Sin will drag us down, and as we become entrenched in our sin and live in our sin, our world becomes dark. But God is light. God has given us freedom. God has given us release. Put our trust in Him. Don't return to those old sinful ways, the slavery to the law. Focus on Christ and what He has done. Now I have to add that Paul here is setting up what is going to come in the rest of the book. It'd be easy to say, well, look, we've been, we've been freed from the law, we've been freed from its condemnation, freed from the curse, freed from the guilt. The law has no place in the life of the believer. Nothing could be farther from the truth that Paul gives to us. The rest of this book, he's going to spell out what is the proper place of the law. The proper place of the law as that response to what God has done. The proper place of the law as that path to freedom. You don't want to be enslaved to sin, then follow after God and follow after His law. He's laid out for us the path of peace. Christ has done everything necessary to free us from the curse and the guilt. And now we, we in love, we in devotion, Say, oh, thank you, God. Now we are free to live in the life of your law. To live that life of liberty, freed from, from the torments of sin. God, as a loving Father, tells us how it is we should live. He lays out the path of righteousness. We as parents do that too. We tell our kids, this is what you should do. Kids, your parents don't make rules just because they want to. They make rules so that you will be kept safe, so you'll be protected. Walking in the, in the rules your parents gives you is a way of blessing from them. I think one of the most unloving things a parent can say to a child, one of the most unloving things a parent can say to a child, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. What a terrible thing to be told, do whatever you want. I don't care what happens to you. God does not do that. God doesn't say, you've been freed from the curse of the law. You've been freed from the guilt of the law. Now live how you want. He says, you've been set free. Now walk in the path of freedom. Now walk the way I've called you. And Paul is going to, in these following chapters, lay that path of freedom out for us. Don't lose that freedom. Don't be enslaved once again to sin. Don't be caught up in the things of this life. We've been released. We've been freed. Paul says, let no one pass judgment. Let no one condemn you. Let no one disqualify you for these old things. Live the life to which you have been called. Oh, there is a glorious blessing in following Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted 
and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Don't lose your freedom. Stay close to God by the power of his spirit. Listen to what he has to say. Walk in the path of freedom he has laid out for you. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, you are a loving and gracious Father. You are the one who in your Son, Jesus Christ, has done everything necessary to secure our salvation. And yet, O oh God, you go beyond that. You don't simply walk with us up to salvation, but you walk with us after salvation. You don't allow us to be enslaved once again to sin as we stay close to you but you give us your law, that beautiful path of freedom. Lord God, make us good students of that law, make us followers of that law by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we not be enslaved, that we not lose our freedom, but continue to walk in the light, in the newness of life we have through Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake, amen. Let's turn to number 235 in the Psalter. Number 235, how blessed are the perfect in the way who walking in Jehovah's law with pleasure preserve their piety from day to day. How blessed are they who make his word their treasure, who keep his testimonies and display their love for him whose goodness none can measure. We're gonna sing verses one and two and then verse 5 and 9. Verses 1 and 2, 5 and 9 of 235. Let's stand together as we sing.
following the benediction, we will sing uh, from the song sheet, uh, the side 161, verses 1 and 3 and 5. Receive now the blessing of our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.